we have a picture of my son. See, he's on, he's on the screen. He is adorable. And that's, that's not the only reason I'm showing. I'm not just showing you a picture because he's cute, even though he is super cute. I think, I think my favorite thing about this is just his furrowed eyebrow. Right? He just likes to glare at people. I remember yesterday when SJ and I were putting him in the car, he was just glaring at us from the back seat. We like put up a mirror so we could see him, and he was just, just giving us the stank eye because he did not like being in his car seat. But he comes by it. Honestly, that's a, you know, a look that I have and my dad has. We just like to furrow our brow when we're, when we're just rusting. That's, it's a genetic thing, I guess, because my son has it. Anyway, uh, I'm not just showing that because he's cute, even when he is grumpy and angry. Um, uh, my son is a good illustration of our sermon topic this morning. Uh, he is about 10 weeks old, uh, and I've gotten, over the past 10 weeks, I've gotten to know him. I've gotten to know a little bit about his personality, about his likes and his dislikes. I've seen him go from being, you know, a tiny newborn with a scrunched up face to, you know, a, a bigger baby. He's still obviously very young uh, with more personality and more vigor, and it's been, it's been an amazing Amazing experience just to see him grow up like that, even though he's still a very tiny baby. Uh, before he was born, obviously, uh, we didn't know we didn't know much about him. We didn't know what he looked like. We didn't know what his personality was like. We didn't even find out, you know, whether he was a boy or a girl. You know, she was just pregnant, and we knew he was in there. We knew somebody was in there. You know, we kept moving around and and kicking her, and you know, jumping whenever we watched a loud scene on TV. Uh, But when he finally came out and we finally met him, there was a mystery that was revealed. There were unknowns that became knowns, and it was a really beautiful moment. I still remember, you know, when it was about 2.30 in the morning on that Friday. You know, he he was born, and I I got to, because we didn't find out whether he was a boy or a girl, I got to, you know, call out, it's a boy. This This is my son. This is the one we've been waiting for. The mystery was made known. And really, the entire story of pregnancy was a story of unknowns, a story of mysteries becoming made known. There was a point in time where my parents and her parents didn't know that he was coming. Right? We knew. You couldn't see it on the outside of SJ, right? You just looked at her, and she just looked like she always had. But we knew that inside of her, there was a really, really tiny baby growing. And our parents may have suspected that a baby was coming, you know, just because we got married a few years ago and, you know, I just graduated from school and that's kind of what you do next, right? You have a baby. So maybe they they knew something was coming. There was kind of an uncertain expectation that they had that became known. I remember being able to tell them. uh, We got to tell SJ's in-laws or SJ's parents, excuse me, on uh, my mother-in-law's birthday. And we got her a card that read, happy birthday, grandma, right? Real subtle. We just kind of threw it in there, and she read it. She said, are you serious? And she started, she just became so excited, and my father-in-law started crying. Uh, the way we told my parents was actually on the 4th of July, we had a, um, you know, like a family get-together, as we do, and, and I volunteered to pray, which is a little bit unusual, but not too unusual, because, you know, I'm a pastor and whatnot. I volunteered to pray, and I, you know, thank God for our country and the freedoms that we enjoy, and I thanked God for the baby that was coming in January. And I remember looking at my mom's face, right? I, I feel like I looked at her for about 10, 15 seconds, but we rewatched the video. It was really only a second or two. She just looked at me stunned, just blank face as she tried to process and throw all of these thoughts and all of these emotions together. 
right? This grandbaby that she'd been waiting for for so long was finally coming. And through this process, a series of unknowns became knowns. Something we waited for, something we expected, even though we didn't know quite what it would look like, became known. When that happened, it was wonderful and amazing and better than anything that we could have expected. Paul here, in our passage this morning, talks about a mystery. And the content of this mystery we talked about a lot last week. We will overview it. But he talks about the timing of this mystery here. He says, in reading this then, this is verse number four, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. So Paul looks back to the times in the Old Testament where they they knew something was coming. There was some kind of expectation. But the full contents of that mystery were still unknown to them. The illustration I used last week when talking about this was kind of a dark cloth or a thick curtain that's held in front of a light. And right there's a little pinpricks and holes that keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger until you can finally see it. Maybe a better, better illustration is one of being in a cave and seeing a light at the end of the tunnel. Remember a couple years ago, SJ and I had the opportunity, along with our seminary, to go to the land of Israel. And in the land of Israel, there's a tunnel. You read about it in the Bible. It's 2,500 years old. Uh, King Hezekiah dug it um, underneath the walls of the city of Jerusalem so they could get water when they were under siege. And that tunnel is still there today, and you can go into it. And you can wade through it. And it's, I don't know, half a mile long, quarter mile long. Uh, it seemed like an eternity when we were going through it. Uh, and I'm, I'm the type of person who's really claustrophobic. I'm scared of restrictive, tight spaces. And it was horrifying for me. I'm glad that I got to do it, but I would never do it again. Uh, but as we, were, as we were walking through it, right, it's just seeming dark for eternity, right? You're walking along, trudging along. There's water, you know, flowing along the bottom. You're in a tunnel with your classmates, and you start to wonder, you know, have I just been doing this for eternity? Like, you know, is this just what life is, and have I been dreaming about everything else? But as we kept going on for what seemed like ages, finally we saw a light. We saw that the tunnel we'd been trudging through was finally coming to an end. And as it got closer and closer and closer, what was just a speck of light in the distance became bigger and bigger and bigger. And as we got really close, we could hear, you know, hear life going on outside. It wasn't just entirely that, you know, the dull, quiety dripping of an underwater cave. You saw life happen, birds chirping, traffic going by. And when you finally stepped out into that world from that tunnel, it was beautiful and amazing. Fully stepping into that world, whereas once it had just been a speck of light at the end of a tunnel. That's what's going on here. For a while in the Old Testament, this light, this mystery was just a speck at the end of the tunnel. They knew something was happening. There were promises all throughout the Old Testament. Right, The promise that God made to Adam and Eve, that there would come a descendant who would finally crush the serpent. The promise that God made to Abraham, that through all of his descendants, the world would be blessed. Right, these, oh, There were all these hints through the prophets that the Gentiles were going to be able to come and worship alongside the Jewish people. But when that finally came to pass, when we finally reached the New Testament and we find out that not only do the Gentiles get to worship this God, 
but they get to become a part of the people of God. They get to have a relationship with God just like the Israelites did in the Old Testament. It was beautiful, wonderful news. So the timing of this mystery, the timing of the revelation of this mystery is that it's revealed at the time of Christ. When we get to Christ, we find out what's really going on. And the content of this mystery is that the Jews and the Gentiles are united together in one body, the church. And again, if you were with us last week, we talked about this at length last week. No longer are we separated from God's people. No longer are we Jews and Gentiles. God's people is the church. We have access to God through the sacrifice and the work of Jesus Christ. And so no longer are we separated from God's people. We have access to God. We are united together as long as we repent of our sins, believe the gospel, and are united to Christ. This body of believers comes with a greater allegiance than any other group. Our American citizenship is secondary to this new citizenship that we have. Any ethnic heritage that we have is secondary to this new citizenship. We are the people of God, and we will be for eternity. A couple weeks ago, when we looked at the first half of Ephesians 2, We looked at individualism, right? How I personally, by myself, can become right with God. And that's a good and important part of the gospel. But it's not just that. It's not just me and Jesus. It's also us in Jesus. And Paul here talks about the full revelation of the mystery. It's not just that I can be reconciled to God, even though that's certainly true. It's that I become part of a people And we all are reconciled to God. We as a church have a relationship with God. We live in a culture sometimes that sees its Christianity as just a me and Jesus thing. Right? It's common sometimes in some circles of Christianity, you know, if you really like the preaching or the worship at this one church, you're going to go there on a Sunday morning. If you like the youth group at another church, you go, you go over there for that. And if you, at the, or if you like a small group at, at a third church, you're going to go there. As long as it, you, know, you just kind of take what you like from different churches because it's all about me and my relationship with Jesus. But that's not the case. Church is a corporate thing. That's why we take church membership seriously. It means something to belong to a body. We are together in this. We are a new body of believers. And we have relationship or a relationship with God together. We are his people. Peace Presbyterian Church here in Flint, Michigan, right here, right now. We are the people of God. And even as we individually should be drawn closer to God, we as a body of believers should be drawn closer to each other and pursue God together. So we saw the timing. It's revealed at the time of Christ. We saw the content. Jews and Gentiles united together in one body. And Paul also here talks about the purpose. And this was, um, this was really interesting to me, so I want to hit this real quick before we move on to the next section. But Paul writes in verse number 10, His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Let me read that again, because I had to read this a few times before I really got the gist of it. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to who? 
the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. But over the past few weeks, as we've talked about the rulers and the authorities, we first encountered them in chapter 1. Rulers and authorities are those spiritual, spiritual beings that aren't, aren't God, right? They're not all-knowing or anything, but they reside in heaven. They'd be beings that we would think of as angels and demons and spiritual forces. They also include, uh, you know, earthly forces. You know, I've used the illustrations of Julius Caesar to Donald Trump, all of these great leaders that we have, rulers of empires and great nations. But the view in chapter 1 the view elsewhere in the Bible, is that at the end of all things, every single one of those rulers and authorities, no matter how great they are, no matter how much power they have, whether it's physical or spiritual, every one of them will bow to the headship of Jesus Christ. At the end of all things, Jesus Christ will be the head of all things. And every knee will bow. This is from Philippians. But every knee will bow on earth, things that are under the earth, things that are above the earth. Every knee will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so when Paul says that the church's job is to make known the wisdom of God to these powers and authorities, it means on that last day, when the angels and when the demons look at what God has done through our body, through the church, when when they look at how God has made peace, how God has brought the Gentiles in, how God has forgiven sins. When they look at that, they will see how good and how wise God really is. And they will see our unity. They will see our body united together. And they will turn and worship God. God will use us to declare his glory. This is the mystery of the gospel. This is the mystery of the good news. We see the mystery, which Paul talks about largely in the first six or so verses of this chapter. And then Paul moves on and he talks about his ministry. Those happen to just alliterate really nicely. There's the mystery and then there's the ministry. And Paul talks about how he is a slave of the good news that the Gentiles can receive the riches of Christ. Paul describes himself here as a servant, as a minister, Elsewhere, in other books, he describes himself as a slave. At the beginning of this passage, he describes himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He describes how he is compelled to preach the gospel. By the way, when I use the word gospel, I mean the exact same thing as when I say good news. Those two words mean the exact same thing. So if you're reading your Bible and you read good news and you read gospel, that's the same thing. The gospel, the good news, is that God has come to the Gentiles, and there can be forgiveness for all who confess and believe. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And Paul is a prisoner of this gospel. He's a slave to it. He's compelled to tell other people about what God has done. Going back to the illustration of my son that was born, my son who was a mystery and we we got to know more and more about him, and then more and more people knew about him, and finally... You know, I get, I get to know him, I get to see him, I get to look him in his eye, and I get to, you know, see his personality. And one day, I'm going to get to talk to him, and I'm really excited about that, to have a conversation with my son. And it's going to be amazing when that finally happens. But as this mystery is revealed, there's an excitement about it. For those of you who have grandkids, or, you know, nephews and nieces, 
Those of you who have people younger than you and your family that, you, that you're excited about, you want to show off, what do you do? You have pictures of them, right? I had a picture of my son this morning because I wanted you all to see how cute he was. And if you're a grandparent, if you have someone special in your life that you want to show off, you might do some interesting things. You might feel need or feel the need. You might feel led of the Lord to tap somebody on the shoulder and in line at the grocery store in front of you and say, hey, this is my grandson, right? This is my granddaughter. Look at how cute they are. And you know the person doesn't care, right? You know the person who you run into at church. They're, they're never going to be as excited as you are, but you're excited and you want to share that excitement with the world. You feel compelled to share the gospel, you feel compelled to share the good news that you now have somebody in your life who's really cute and that you love. In the same way, Paul is compelled to share the gospel. Paul is required internally, he has to share this good news that has come to him. Paul didn't always used to be the slave of the gospel. He, he wasn't always the apostle who had preached the boundless riches of Christ to the Gentiles. Paul actually has a really interesting and in-depth story, and we've talked about this in past weeks, but it's worth going over again. Paul was a Pharisee. Now, when we hear the word Pharisee as Christians, we tend to think primarily of Jesus' encounters with, with a group of religious leaders in the Gospels. And we tend to have a really, really negative view of these Pharisees. And I don't want to. I don't want to say that you know the Gospels are, you know, they're not painting a bad picture. But the original audience of those Gospels would have understood something different. They would have seen those Pharisees as religious leaders. They would have viewed them with respect. And yes, there were ones who were envious of Jesus. Yes, there were ones who killed Jesus. But just being a Pharisee was not a bad thing. It was a respectable thing back in the first century. Maybe a good illustration or a good, you know, what a Pharisee would be today, if Pharisees were around today, is a seminary professor, right? Someone who's devoted to studying scripture, a pastor, a bishop, someone who is respected for their knowledge of the word of God. This is who Paul was. Paul was a Pharisee. He was zealous for his Jewish faith, Paul, actually, he got to learn at the feet of one of the most famous rabbis of all time, Rabbi Gamaliel. But Paul devoted his life to studying the Old Testament, devoted his life to studying the Jewish faith. He cared deeply about it. He was passionate about it to the point where he persecuted Christians. Right? This new movement that comes on the scene. Paul, as a, as a zealous Jewish person sees this as an aberration, as something to be stomped out. So at first, all Paul does, and this is recorded in Acts chapter 6, he just he looks after the coats of the people who stoned one of the first deacons, Stephen. You know, he wasn't actually throwing the rocks, but he would, you know, he'd look after those guys' coats. He was on the same side, even if he didn't quite get his hands dirty. But as time went on, Paul actually got in on the action. He persecuted Christians. He killed Christians. And scripture tells us of one time where Paul's actually traveling down the road to Damascus, right, from Jerusalem and Israel to modern-day Syria. Paul's going down this road in order to find Christians there to imprison them and to murder them when God intervenes in his life. A bright light appears to Paul in the middle of the Damascus road. 
A bright light comes to him in the voice of Jesus, right, in his glorified body on the earth. He says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Why do you keep resisting the conviction that's in your heart? Why? And in that moment, Paul becomes miraculously converted. He goes from someone who persecuted and killed Christians to a Christian himself. And a lot of the Christians, you know, they were, they were rightfully kind of suspicious of him. Paul spent years, we don't really read about this a lot in the Bible, it just kind of skips over it. But Paul spent years studying and learning and humbly, humbly growing in relationship with groups of Christians. When, you know, he joined the church at Antioch and they commissioned him as a missionary. They said, you know, we feel like we need to send people out to the world to tell them about Jesus Christ. Who will go? And Paul and Barnabas and a few other people said, you know, I think that's us. And Paul became known as the apostle to the Gentiles. He was a guy who was so devoted to the Jewish faith that he persecuted Christians. And now his life became dedicated to spreading the good news, to talking about this mystery that the Gentiles are roped in into the Jewish faith. And he goes and he tells the Gentiles whom he previously would have seen as unclean. Previously, he would have seen them as dogs. Previously, he wouldn't have talked to them. Previously, he wouldn't have had anything to do with them. He goes to the Gentiles to tell them how much God loves them. He was sent out on mission to modern-day Turkey, modern-day Greece, modern-day Italy, to spread the gospel. And that's how the Ephesians, right? We're studying the book of Ephesians. That's how they found out about this. It's because Paul came and shared it with them. But this wasn't an easy mission that Paul went out on. It wasn't, you know, as they say, it wasn't a bed of roses. Paul faced persecution. In the city of Lystra, Paul himself was stoned. Right? And stoning, for those of you who don't know or have forgotten perhaps, they would take actual physical stones, they would throw them at you, break your bones, smash your face in, and leave you for dead. Paul was stoned. Perhaps they thought he was dead. Perhaps he actually was dead. Scripture's a little bit ambiguous on that. But miraculously, Paul survives. And he, instead of going home and saying, well, that's it for me, I'm not going to do that anymore, he keeps going. He's compelled to share this mystery with the nations. Paul goes to the city of Philippi. And as the gospel spreads in the city of Philippi, he finds, right, there's, there's a demon-possessed girl Right? She would go around and she would tell the fortunes of people. And Paul and his companion Silas came across her and they cast the demon out of this girl. And now she can't prophesy, right? And so the people, the pimps who would go around and try to, try to make money off of her, they were mad because that was their source of income. So they have Paul thrown in jail and whipped. And it takes an earthquake. It takes a miraculous intervention for Paul to escape. But does he pack up and go home? No, he just keeps going. Even in the city of Ephesus, right, this place where Paul writes this letter to, there's a giant mob stirred up because this time so many people were converted that nobody was buying those little silver statues of the local goddess Diana. And the silversmiths were mad and they said, he's defiling our temple, he's defiling our local worship. And so there was this massive riot and Paul, bless his heart, was about to go out in the middle of them and try to explain himself, but the local church was like, no, 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 you're, you're not going out there. They pulled him back. And he fled the city. But he kept spreading the gospel. None of this dissuaded him. 
He was a slave to this gospel. He was compelled to share this gospel. Paul writes about this story a little bit in Philippians chapter 3. Allow me to read this to you. This is verse number 4 we're starting in. If someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then Paul goes and gives his, his Jewish credentials. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Paul says, right, if you looked at how much I did, right, just according to the flesh, Paul says, I was, I was it. But that's not enough. Verse number seven, Paul goes on, but whatever were gains to me now, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Jesus, the Messiah, my King, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. Garbage. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection, but also the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. That Jewish identity that Paul had, all of the righteousness that he thought he had, he counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Yes, to know the power of Christ's resurrection, but also to experience the sufferings of Christ. That was Paul's goal. To become so united to his Savior Jesus Christ that he suffered along with him for sharing the gospel. And suffer, Paul did. Scripture doesn't tell us how Paul died. Most of Paul's story is told in the book of Acts, and the book of Acts just kind of ends abruptly when he's imprisoned in Rome which is actually probably where this book was written from during Paul's imprisonment in Rome. We don't know this for sure because it's not in Scripture. Paul actually probably got out of prison, was released for a time. You know, there's, there's some church tradition. There's some people who think that maybe he went to Spain to spread the gospel. A lot of people think that some of his later books, like Timothy or 2 Timothy and Titus, were written during that, that last period of his life. But church tradition, and this is a number of church fathers, Again, we don't know this for sure, but Paul probably died by the sword. He probably gave his life for his faith, for his Savior, for his King, Jesus the Messiah. And Paul was happy to do it. He was happy to be a minister to the Gentiles, happy to tell them about this wonderful mystery that they, that we, can have access to God through Christ. That we've been united in one body together. We can know the boundless riches of the mystery of Christ. And Paul devoted his life to sharing that with the world. As we conclude, I'm going to ask a question. I don't, I don't want anyone to raise their hand. Don't respond to this. Just 
Consider this in your heart. Paul here talks about the boundless riches of Christ. How many people have you told about the boundless riches of Christ in the last month? In the last month, how many people have you shared that with? It's a wonderful mystery, isn't it? It's been revealed. It's amazing. It's good news. It's a gospel. But how many people outside the walls of this church know about that because of us, because of our ministry? If it's none in the last month, how about the last year? How many have you shared the gospel with in the last year? Lest you think that I'm trying to guilt trip you or you know, beat you over the head with something, I will freely admit to you that I am not good at this. I've told a couple people about the riches of Christ in the last year. I don't think I've told anyone in the last month. I'm bad at evangelism. I know that. And it's something God has convicted me of, and it's something I'm, I'm working on, you know, along with my wife, SJ, just how can we be Christ to our neighbors? How can we share Christ to this community? Let me ask you a follow-up question. If we haven't told anyone about Christ in the last year or the last month, what are you doing right now to allow you to share Christ in a year? Are you laying foundations? Are you developing relationships even now that will allow you, help you, to share the gospel with Christ, share the gospel of Christ, excuse me, down the line? I was talking to SJ about this this week. Um, and one of the ways in which I feel like I'm being called to do this, excuse me, my voice is cracked, I'm being called to do this. Uh, Swartz Creek, just locally, they have a men's basketball pickup game on Tuesday nights. It's technically for those who are 30 or older, um, but I am kind of fat and have a bad knee, so I don't think that I'm going to beat up on too many you know, people over 30. So I'm planning on showing up. And I'm not going to show up the first night and just tell everyone, you know, everyone, can I, have your, or can I have your attention? I'd just like to share the gospel with you right now. But I hope and I pray that God uses that time to allow me to meet people who are broken, who are suffering because of others' sin and because of their own sin. And by God's grace, I pray that he will allow me to share the mystery, to share the good news that everyone can have redemption through Christ Jesus. I encourage each one of you. This mystery that we know is wonderful news. It's incredible. Share it with the world. Tell your neighbors. Tell your coworkers. Tell your classmates. And if you don't know anyone who needs this, go find someone who needs this. Go take a local class. Go get involved at a community center. Go find someone who needs the gospel because this world is full of people who need Jesus Christ. This world is full of people who are broken, who are sinful, who without Christ are children of wrath. And they look forward to an existence of God's wrath for eternity unless they repent and believe on him. So I pray that over the next year, over the, next, over the coming months, God shapes me and God shapes this church into a church that shares the mystery of the gospel with Clayton Township, with Flint, 
and with the world. May God do that work in us. Will you pray with me?